another episode of the Fort Worth Guitar Academy podcast. My guest today is the world famous, unimitable <laughs> John Harlow. Hey, John. Good morning. Good morning, Eric. Um, so, John is British, which you will clearly hear. And uh, he is a fascinating man. He's been a guitar student for a few years now. And he has the most amazing stories about growing up in England and all of the, the world-renowned rock stars uh, from England. And, and they all kind of grew up down the street from him. And uh, so I'm just going to kind of let John talk about whatever he wants to talk about, whatever story comes out. Oh, good morning. Uh, so, uh, my name is John. I came to America about 36 years ago. Um, only came for a year. It didn't work out, but I'm still here. Um, but I did grow up in um, a, an area of South London, uh, which was really the cradle of what you would know today as classic rock, because just then it was just rock. Um, I was a little too young for some of the sort of Jimi Hendrix type stuff, but I was around for The Who and Humble Pie and people like that. Um, I grew up in a town, well, I was born in the town of Kingston, um, which is where um, Eric Clapton um, used to live, and we both went to the same college. Uh, he, he was there before me, um, but we were there, you know, in that town together. Um, and really where this started with Eric, I started telling him one day that I read Eric Clapton's autobiography, and I found out that I bought my first guitar, which was in 1974. I bought my first guitar in the shop where Eric Clapton bought his famous Gibson Red, Red Gibson 335, the one that sold for close to a million dollars at auction for his Crossroads Foundation. Which is so cool. And a lot of people don't know that he, they, they think of him as a Strat guy. But originally, that that was what his most famous recordings right, that's, were done. Right, that's it. He was he was a Strat guy after Jimi Hendrix died. He became a Strat guy because that was his his homage, if you like, to Jimi Hendrix. Oh but no, be, kid, I didn't know that. Yeah, but before that, he was a Gibson guy. He, he played a beautiful 1960 Les Paul, which is on the Beano album of John Mayle, and he played with Cream, but it was stolen. And it's never resurfaced. In fact, uh, people look at all the markings on various Gibsons, and they think it's possible that the guitar that Bernie Marsden plays, he was the guy from Whitesnake and he still owns the guitar and he, think it's, he thinks it's possible, even probable, that it was the guitar that was stolen from Eric Clapton really? in 1966-67. <laughs> um, Eric, Eric says he can't remember enough about it to say one way or the other, um, but it's an interesting... You know, there were only... What's it they used to say about the 50, 58, 59, 60 Gibson Les Pauls that... The famous English guitarists brought back to acceptability, if you like. I mean, Gibson had taken them out of the catalogue, and there was only 1,750 of them made in that three-year period. And they, as they joke today, only 2,200 of them are accounted for. Because <laughs> so, right? they are so valuable, they go for a quarter of a million dollars and up, depending on who owned them. Right. And uh, so people fake them all the time, right? So they've been looking for years to find Eric Clapton's guitar, the one that was stolen. After that, it said he bought this Gibson 335 uh, from a place called Bell's Musical Instruments, which is was just down the road from where... It was right between the two high schools. Eric went to Hollyfield Road High School. I went to South Boys High School. So we were rival high schools. Uh, said he was there a little before me. Um, but he bought that guitar from Bell's, which was really the only guitar place um, outside of London that you could buy those kind of guitars. If you, you know, if you went up to London, you know, that's where you know a lot of the 
sort of top players bought their instruments was in London at the famous Fender Soundhouse and places like that, Manny's and, and stuff, which is still there. Um, but uh, Bell's was the place outside of London that you went to. So I didn't I didn't realise that, that I'd bought my guitar from where he bought that one from. Today it's an Italian restaurant, interestingly. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a carpet showroom too. Do you, um, did, did you always pay out the wazoo for American instruments yeah, back try, then? But, um, actually, it was, it was illegal to import American instruments until about 1960 and that's when wow. the famous Hank Marvin of the Shadows imported the first red Stratocaster to England and that and it, so that's why you had those awful English guitars like Burns and, and Watkins <laughs> rapiers I mean they were dreadful guitars um, but you couldn't buy you weren't legally allowed to own a Fender and Gibson you weren't allowed to import one wow right because they were protecting uk industry however that did spur things like marshall amplification and things like that they came out in high watt you know they were english companies uh, because they couldn't buy fender they couldn't buy fender amps in england so they you know jim marshall made his own well that's kind of a blessing in disguise right there yeah yeah but (laughs) guitar wise it was not good news at all right right Um, but anyway so there was I, i grew up in the county of surrey and um, three very famous guitar players came from there, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. All three of them are from Surrey. And um, Page and uh, Beck knew each other really well. In fact, they grew up kind of listening to American records because they always used to joke, we reintroduced America to its own music. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, these black blues guitar players, you know, nobody would listen to them in America. They would listen to the Beach Boys and stuff. But in England, these guys couldn't get enough. Well, get, get a little closer to the mic. These, these guys couldn't get enough of these American blues players. Like, yeah. Like Freddie King, B.B. King. I think uh, the Rolling Stones rescued B.B. King's career. Eric Clapton rescued Freddie King's career. Really? So they were kind of like falling into obscurity? Yeah, I mean, they were in their 40s, even 50s by then. Howling Wolf, people like that, Muddy Waters. You know, they were, they were, they were done in this country. And, uh, but in England, that's the records that, that uh, Jeff Beck and Clapton were, they were copying. Right? So, so Page had already grown into a good session musician by the time he was in his mid-teens. Right, so he, they estimate he played on in excess of sixty percent of all records made in London between sixty three and sixty eight. What all records? All records recorded in London. Wow! Right, so he was everywhere, and Jeff Beck, of course, the genius that he still is, even in his mid seventies now. Yeah, you know, he was playing um, the clubs in South London, and back then you could. You, I mean, uh, I think one of the f- funniest stories was that Cream, you know, which is probably the the super band of the mid sixties, Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, and Jack Bruce, they were playing that college that we just mentioned at the start of this. They were playing that for 150 pounds a night, and they and they were and they <laughs> you mean were like for the band for the band, and they wow. were playing that six times a year. They were touring everywhere, but they were playing those kind of things, and you could see the Who at the local pub. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that uh, the Who were crazy. playing a pub, and the Rolling Stones practicing a house at the end of my grandmother's street. So they were all from the South London area. They all knew each other. They all played together, you know. And if you sort of hung around, so I was just a little too young for some of it. But my my friend's elder brothers, um, they they were involved in that. In fact, one of them became the roadie for Emerson, Lake and Palmer. He just was hanging around. He was a drummer, hung around in the Fender Soundhouse in London, finished up being Carl Palmer's roadie for a decade and going all over the world with him. You know, so all these things were linked together. And uh, yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, there were a lot of sort of ad hoc 
um, gigs that went on at that time. First of all, it didn't cost you anything to go and see somebody. Today, it's hundreds of dollars to go see a band. Back then, it was a dollar or two. Right. I think I, I, a student of mine told me last night they paid uh, $250 for a couple tickets to go see Billy Joel in mm-hmm. like the, the nosebleeds. And hundred. someone paid 150 to see... I don't know somebody else recently, but yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, I mean, of course, you know, decades have passed and etc. But I remember one afternoon I saw a very young Sammy Hagar front the band Montrose, and he was warming up for uh, Lou Reed, who in turn was warming up for Bad Company, who was warming up for Humble Pie, <laughs> who were bought them warming up for the main act, which was the Who. And that cost four dollars. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, that was what would, four what bucks. would the equivalent of that be today? I don't know, probably twenty or thirty most. Golly, you know, I mean, it was, uh, and you could, you, we literally went and saw bands every week because they were always in London. So, like for instance, I saw Bad Company one night at the famous Rainbow in London, and half of Led Zeppelin showed up. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones showed up and played for half an hour at the end. Wow, you know that. And then when I saw Eric Clapton, this was a gig that we saw in 1976. Um, Eric Clapton, his guitar player already was was uh, George Terry, who was a fabulous guitar player. But with him on that tour was Freddie King. And if you've never listened, if you like electric blues from Chicago, you should listen to Freddie King. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, He was the last word in phrasing and style and everything, you know, which Eric Clapton adored him. So he took him on that tour. And then for the end of the show, um, he also brought on Larry Coriel, which he was a jazz, brilliant jazz guitar player who only passed away about two years right. ago. Was that uh, already two years ago? I think so. It wow. might have been last year, but it's certainly, I mean, yeah, it again, an incredible, guitar, incredible guitar player. Yeah. And then a certain Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones came on as well. So you had five guitar <laughs> players, you know, just to close the show out, you know. Um, and that was that was normal back then, you know. I mean, everybody was playing with everybody else. And if they were in town, they showed up and they played. Wow. You know, so you never, so that was a really neat thing. You never knew who you were going to see. You, that's you know, cool. That's, you went to see, that's fascinating. Yeah, you went to see one band, but you might see half of, you know, three quarters of another the one. The best well. I get is is if I go see Eric Johnson or one of those guys, Andy Timmons might make an appearance. Right, yeah. <laughs> like I saw Joe Bonamassa and Eric Johnson showed up. That was in Austin. That was good. Yeah, that's you know, cool. So it does happen, but but back then it always happened. Right, right. You know, and it didn't cost you much. But um, so I think the, you know, just that area of South London was such a fertile ground for brilliant musicians because they were also fighting an establishment that didn't want them. Um, so they, uh, they had to be very, very good. The one thing that nobody could level at them is that they weren't good musicians. Yeah. They were fabulous yeah. musicians. I mean, take Jack Bruce, the bass player from cream. He was at the Royal classically trained, he, right? He was at the Royal, I think it was Royal college of music or, or one of those top colleges as a, as a double bass player. Um, so at night he played jazz clubs, which they all did. They all, you know, whatever, whatever music they liked. And, and Jack Bruce was really a jazz player. As was Ginger Baker, who was a jazz drummer. Right. And then they found Eric Clapton and became the first power trio in history, probably, that, you know, to form Cream, you know. So it was, uh, you know, they, they weren't destined to last very long, but what they did will never, will never die out. I mean, it was fabulous, fabulous right. work. Of course, we lost Ginger Baker just last week. Right. Um, you know, they're all getting very old, as am I. But uh, it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they were, they were, they were really good times. And uh, as a guitar player, I mean, as a young guitar player, I think the thing I would say now is um, we didn't have any, there was no tab. If you bought a, if you managed to get a songbook of a, an artist, it was always written in standard notation. There was no solos in it because... 
from a s- classical music point of view, you were expected to do your own cadenza. Right. Right. So, right. You, so they didn't give you the solo. And I would argue that's one of the things that made that whole generation so great is because they had to sit and listen and just figure stuff right, out. Right. Which I did myself. And, I mean, you know, I played, yeah. I mean, one of the, the things I think told Eric last week in 1974, I was playing uh, Rory Gallagher's Irish tour. I wore the record out trying to play it at half speed, trying to pick out what he was doing. And now there's a songbook for it with Tab. You know, of course, you can watch it on YouTube. You can, you know, it's tutorials for it. Anything you want to do with that album, you can do note for note as Rory Gallagher did it, you know. And so it was so much harder to, to learn and the instruments you played were expensive and rubbish. Right. <laughs> I mean, I had a, you know I had Japanese copies by then, and they were just some of them were good. They became they're becoming classics in their own right. Some of the Les Paul. But it's it's amazing but, what you can. I mean, even for I mean, I I know you wouldn't be caught dead with a hundred dollar, <laughs> you know, <now>. Squire strap. <laughs> not now. Yeah, they're good for, for starting out. Yeah. they're they're really well made. They are really good, yeah. and you can buy you know Mexican strats as good as anything you can buy. Oh, which, for sure. You know, I, my Mexican strat is twenty years old, and I still play it's sitting next to my amp at home i play it almost yeah. every day i mean I, I, you know we're saying about the price of guitars even when they did start importing them to england i think a stratocaster was six months pay for me wow as a teenager six, my six, oh well six as a teenager pay. we probably weren't well, making that much as a no teenager. i wasn't but it's still it was still a heck of a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> you know and it was probably six times the price of a lousy japanese copy so right right you know so it just wasn't practical to say you would own one and even yeah. now people there play epiphones and oh, yeah. squires because uh, you know a, a real gibson les paul in england is probably five thousand dollars right i've got friends from australia and from england and um and germany and what what they pay mm-hmm. for the instruments that i have is outrageous it's outrageous and yeah. it's and it's still that way um because yeah. there are only a few importers and they fix the prices yeah. so it's still very hard and in fact it became so hard for me i mean i went off sort of motor racing and traveling the world and making a living but i gave up playing the guitar for 20 years and that became that's the regret of my life and that's why i'm back with eric now you know trying to pick up the pieces as it were you know it's 60 years old um but you know that was the regret of my life i just gave up it was just so hard to do it if you didn't have full time to devote to it it was almost impossible yeah almost impossible you yeah. couldn't do it like you can today you say i want to play like david gilmore or pink floyd and you can find you know, your amp, there's an amp setting for you. There's a YouTube video to <laughs> right. watch. There's a tab songbook. You can, you know, just, you can have the whole effect in five minutes. We've, we've got all the resources. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's pretty amazing. There's no excuse not to learn now. <laughs> right. <laughs> no for excuse. Sure. Well, yeah. speaking of learning guitar, we, we are late on our lesson. We got to go start uh, playing some guitar. So we're going to wrap this up. We're going to call this part one with John Harlow because I have a feeling we're going to do many more of these. I, we might try to make this like a monthly thing. And uh, maybe one week out of the month, we'll, we'll have John here with us. So next week, uh, my guest will um, will will be uh, a mom of one of our students. I don't know which one. It's going to be either uh, Shara or um, Kendra. But uh, either way, it's going to be a good time. So join us next week. And thank you, John, for being here today. My this pleasure. Was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. Yes, <laughs> this, this is good fun. All thank right. You. Thank you, Eric. We'll see you guys next time.